Good morning. I don't know what I did to Tim to get the bat lead off, but uh, here I am. Yeah, he asked me to speak on mentoring, and I'm not real sure why, but I feel like more people have poured into me than I've poured into others. The dictionary says mentors are wise and sage advisors. You know, maybe gray hair is one of the reasons he asked me. I don't know. But, you know, I think mentoring is more than just advice. You know, the scripture that's really been on my heart here for the last few months has been John 13, 34. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. And I think that's the biggest part of the people that have mentored me in my lifetime is that the love they shared with me, the security they gave to me. You know, I think of the mentors in my life. I think of my dad. I think of a preacher by the name of Reverend Gerald Buchanan at Providence who sometimes came and paid me to rake leaves, but the truth was he was mentoring me at different times while we were there raking leaves or doing odds and ends. I think of Herbert, who the way he has taken care of me at different times. One of the biggest mentors in my life, about 16 years ago, I sat in the back of this church and started coming here. Y'all have no idea how broken I was at the time going through a divorce, but this church mentored me and took care of me. And one of the reasons I can stand here today is because of y'all. Um, Tammy at my office sometimes mentors me. Sometimes she corrects me, but a lot of times <laughs> she, she tells me what I need to hear sometimes. One of my favorite mentors is not here today, Franklin Briggs. We spent eight hours with Franklin, Tim and I did, riding to Charleston, West Virginia. Franklin poured into Tim and I for that whole eight hours and talked to us, not an instructional talk, but just how he shared his life and what he had done in his life and how we could be better people. He turned us on to the love of the book of James, and I read it quite often now because of Franklin. The biggest thing that people do when they mentor is show their love. Tell them that you love them. Tell them that you are a safe place for them to share their personal things. You can't advise them on their problems if they're worried about being judged or if they're worried about what you're going to say to them. Mentoring is all about love. That's the first part of it. And as you go this week, don't just tell somebody you love them. Show somebody you love them. Thank you. Thank you, Stan. Um, good morning. I want to read 1 Peter three, twelve through 15. Uh, and it says this, For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Uh, Talking about a Christian man or a Christian person, man or woman, in the workplace, 
we could talk about honesty and integrity and lots of things that are part of your witness. But, you know, our testimony or our witness is, um, is what will attract people to the gospel. And the best witness, I believe, is not um, that we're perfect or that we're saints or that we make everybody think that we have it all together. Um, I think the best witness is that people see the change that God is making in our life. Uh, people that are with us every day, at our workplaces, at schools, uh, our families especially, we're not going to fool them that we're perfect. We're not going to do that. Um, and what they'll be attracted to is that, that hope it talked about in here, the hope that is in us. And my hope is not in what I do or don't do. My hope is in Jesus, that he redeems me by his blood and transforms me into his righteousness. So the, um, the thing I want to share is that our, our witness, our testimony, is not that we have it all together, but that God is working our life. And uh, just two practical things about being a Christian where you go every day is uh, you've got to pray for the people that are around you. If you uh, notice uh, there's situations in everybody else's life, and if you are praying for those people, God will bring uh, opportunities for you to speak into their lives. And the way you speak into somebody's life is related to how much you consume the Bible. The words that we speak can be uh, God's words if we have consumed his word in our minds and our hearts. So, um, so God transforming us, um, answering our prayers, and speaking to us in his word will give us confidence, uh, confidence to be his witnesses where we are each day, whether it's in our home or our work or our schools. Thank you. If you would open your hymnals and turn to hymn number 98. Come thou found of every blessing, let's stand and sing. Thank you. 
us above. Thank you. You may be seated. Good morning. I'm a little bit nervous, so just hang with me. A couple of months ago, uh, Tim Way, he came up to me and asked if I would do a favor. I said, sure, what is it? I'm thinking, you know, hang up something, do this, that. Now, he says, he asked me if you would speak on Baptist Men Day on marriage. My first thoughts was, are you crazy? I said that to myself. (laughs) Then I said, let me pray about it, thinking in my mind that God would give me, let it be okay with him if I decided to say no. And there I go thinking again. So I prayed. This was back around the last of November or 1st of December when he approached me. One morning in December, I was reading <clears throat> my devotion, uh, the, the word for you today. I opened it, and it opened up to January the 6th, and I saw, Husbands, love your wives. Does your wife know you love her? This was part one of four, so this... So this is when I knew my answer. So I told Tim I would do it. So how do we love our wives? I read from Esther 5.26. Husbands, love your wives. Seek the highest good for her and surround her with care. Unselfishly loving, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. <clears throat> so we should love them as Jesus loved the disciples and the church. Even they had faults. He loved them anyway. Unconditional love as he sh- should as we should our wives. We should now <clears throat> we should show her the grace and the that Jesus shows us. I read from Deuteronomy 24:5. Says when a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out to fight with the army, not be charged with any duties. He shall be free at home for one year and shall bring happiness to his wife from this. <clears throat> Why did God plan it that way? Because no battle you will ever fight, no job you will ever involve, it will be more important than building a lasting relationship with your wife. Every person who has been married for a long time will agree with the following. Marriage is not for the faint of heart. It is not always pretty or easy. In your vows, you are, it says you are for richer or poor, and in sickness and health, are there for a reason. 
if your wife still is your best friend, works hard, and has been with you through thick and thin, loved you at your best and your worst, is proud to be still married to you, you need to tell her every day how much you love her and always be each other's best friend. <clears throat> and on February 18th, 2020, me and my wife will be married for 43 years. And I'm so blessed to have her. Thank you. morning. Uh, Tim asked me to talk about godliness and fatherhood. That's not challenging at all. You know, uh, you know, fatherhood, I think uh, we could probably say ages us faster than just about anything else that we're going to go through. But uh, what a reward it is. For me personally, I want to share a quote that struck me a few years back, and I think I've shared it before. But a pastor said, you know, when the world cuts us, we should bleed the Bible. Now that challenged me personally, but also as a father. You know, it got me thinking about my children and how their lives, they're going to be impacted by this world, and how are they going to respond to it? You know, I let a lot of my life responding worldly to situations and living for the world and not living for Jesus Christ. And I knew definitely that the path that I laid out then was not the path that I wanted to lay out for my kids. Um... The struggles that I put myself through and into, I wanted to give them a better way. So Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit. Um, these commandments that I give to you are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children. Talk about them with your children when you sit at home. Talk about them with your children when you walk along the road, or in our case, drive down the road. Talk to them about, with your children about this when you lie down or when they're getting into bed at night. Talk to your children about this when they rise every day. Impress them upon your children. You know, there's no way I could share God's word with my kids without God paving a way and Praise God that he does make a way for all of us. Now, the definition of father, according to Google or Webster, as a noun, father is a parent, simply a man who has a child. But it's also a verb. It is a producer of a child. It is one who performs the duties of a male parent. So I like to be challenged, so I'm going to challenge you. Me and which one are you? Are you the noun? Or are you the verb? And this is something I have to wrestle with myself each and every day because there's days when I feel like I'm one or the other. And, and it is a battle. It is not easy. It, nowhere in here does it say fatherhood is easy. But I think as, as men and as fathers, we must ask ourselves, are we seeking to produce godly men and women by how we impress the word of God on our boys and girls as our children, as our sons and daughters? Are we setting the tone for our families by how we live and how we respond to the world around us? Are we preparing our children to bleed the Bible when life cuts them? Because it's going to cut them. 
It cuts each and every one of us. And men, I want you to know that we don't have to fight this battle alone. There's men here. There's men in the seats beside you. There's men in this church who are willing to go to battle with you every day to help you raise your kids and to help give you strength and encouragement to do that. Let us pursue these relationships with each other so that we can better pursue and impress this upon our children. Thank you. I found it to be quite ironic that I was asked to be speaking on leadership when I'm definitely not totally qualified or whatever, but it was also ironic that this morning, as we were talking about leadership in Washington, D.C., our own nation with its presidents, Congress, Republicans, Democrats, and so forth, are embittered in a bitter, bitter impeachment process of our nation's leader. And it focused me, though, on what's really important. And what's really important in leadership is, are we following Jesus? If we are following Jesus, then we are in God's word every day, and we are in prayer, we're in God's house, we are seeking God's will, and so forth. I think that's the problem we have in our nation's capital, in leadership. Are those people, men and women, are they pursuing Jesus and are they pursuing God's word? Because a godly leader in today's world is so badly needed. Whether he's in the church, government, business, or whatever, this world is in desperate need of godly leadership. But who are leaders? Of course, I think God does place the principal responsibility upon a man in his home, in his house, in his business, and in his church. But women, too, can be leaders, of course. I think about the leaders in our nursery somewhat. Those wonderful ladies who are in there changing the poop from our baby's diaper, so to speak. We don't think of them as leaders, but they are. How many of the rest of us are willing to do that? And we seem to think that the main leader in the church sometimes is the guy who's standing behind the pulpit or a pastor or deacon, Sunday school teacher, and so forth. And they are main leaders. Don't let me take that away from you. But it's also the people who never get recognized, their leaders, and their work in God's eyes may be and are is as important as the rest of us. But I think the door of opportunity and leadership is brought to us by Christ. Christ has this way of bringing us into a time, place, and position when he asks us to step up and represent him, to represent his word, his meaning, his spirit, to a lost world. And in doing so, God works in miraculous ways to bring that about. In Moses' life, it was in a burning bush on top of a mountain where God revealed himself to a man there and said, Come and go, and I'll be with you. In our lives today, God is still coming to people in a burning way. God can put within a man's heart or a woman's heart a burning desire in their heart to follow him, to get up and go do something, and to represent him, and to pre present Jesus as the answer to this life. But are we willing to sacrifice ourselves like Jesus did, 
Are we willing to take the pain and the suffering? And very, very few of us will be asked to do that in the Lord's work. But we are asked sometimes to sacrifice our self-will, to sacrifice our desire to make a lot of money, our desire to have a high position in the world's status, and take a position of lowliness in just serving people and loving people and giving of ourselves back to a family. I think so many of us think that in so many ways that we're not qualified. I'm not a brain surgeon because I'm not qualified. I don't have the education. I don't have the skills in my heart, mind, and hands to be able to save somebody. But God puts a talent and ability in all of us to do something in some way for somebody else. And that's serving the Lord and leading people to the Lord as well. I think... One of the things that the rest of the guys have clearly alluded to is the element of love. If a person can't lead in love in serving God and serving other people, if he can't forgive people, if he can't see their faults and see the faults within himself as well, then he has no business in leadership. Because even Jesus forgives. And that's why he came and suffered and died was to come and show us the way for life by forgiving us of our sins. And only he is the perfect leader. Thank you. Thank you. Let me invite our ushers to come forward as we receive our offering. And while they're doing that, I invite you to pray with me. Lord, we thank you so much that we have men in our church who will stand and profess your goodness, that will stand and profess all that you are. And so, God, I pray that the men of this church, the ones who have spoken and the ones of us who have heard, that we would be uh, men after your heart, that we would devote ourselves, mind, body, and spirit to know you and to love you and to invest you into each other. Thank you, O God, that we can come now and give to the work of the ministry so that men can be raised up, so that women can be raised up, so that the gospel can go forward. God, we pray all this in your holy name. Amen.
guys for that song. Aren't you glad that Christ is indeed our sure and steady anchor? Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and be turning to Mark chapter 4, where we will be looking at a text and a story that that song leads us naturally into, the story of Jesus calming a storm. Uh, this is probably one of the more familiar stories in the Gospels about how Jesus 
stands up and speaks to a storm, and the storm obeys. And that in and of itself is quite a miracle, that God can, 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 uh, can speak and things happen. That, that Jesus speaks to things that aren't people. He speaks to, to natural things, and those natural things obey him. But I think there's something else going on beneath the surface. There's something else that Mark wants us to see, which is why he's included us, included this story in his gospel. And I want to say this morning that I've been sent here, been sent into this pulpit this morning to proclaim to you and to proclaim to me the power of God. Now, I hope to do that every single week. But this morning in this text, on clear display for all of us to see, is the utter power of God. And so if you've got your Bibles open, I invite you to stand if you are able. We stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why were you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with a great fear. And said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. God, we confess together that this is your word. And we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and open it to our hearts and our minds Cause us to see wondrous things. We pray this in faith. Amen. You may be seated. We've got three people that I want to speak to mainly this morning, that I want to proclaim the power of God to this morning. The first is those of you who are frightened. There are some of you right now that are involved in some kind of suffering. There's something going on in your life that just seems too big and too large, and you can't see a way out of it. You don't know what to do in the midst of it, and you are wondering, does God know that you are suffering? And so I want to speak to you this morning about the power of God. Second group of people I want to speak to this morning is those of you who may have forgotten the power of God. Sometimes we forget the power of God and we start to act arrogantly on our own. We think we can handle things on our own or we take the attitude of, if God's not going to fix this, then I'll do it. Some of us have forgotten the power of God. A third group of people I want to speak to this morning is those of you who may have never actually seen the power of God. Some of us think we have understood God's power. Some of us think we know things about Jesus. And yet, like the disciples, some of us have never been absolutely rocked to the core (coughs) by the power of Jesus. And so you see on your notes, the main idea is that Jesus' authority over the wind and the sea demonstrate his identity as God. That's not 
necessarily new information for you if you've grown up around church or if you've read this story. But the main idea is that Jesus is showing himself to be God and in so doing is reminding us that he is the one in whom we trust in every circumstance. There's not one single circumstance that life can bring us to where we can't trust God because he is all-powerful. And so we're moving into a new section in Mark's gospel, verses 1 through 34 of chapter 4. Jesus has been teaching, and Mark has been recording what he's teaching, and now he's moved back to a story. Now, we need to keep in mind that all of chapter 4 is one day, one 24-hour period of time, that Jesus starts teaching in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. He concludes that teaching in chapter 4, verse 34, and then verse 35 says, On that day, they got into a boat. And so if you remember, as he's teaching parables, he, he has the boat brought up so that he can teach from the boat because the crowds are, 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 are pressing him too much. And so Jesus says, let's get in the boat. Let's go across to the other side. And starting now in chapter 4, verse 35, extending through chapter 6, verse 6, there's going to be this theme of death, then the threat of death that kind of looms over every single story. We're going we're gonna to encounter people that are faced with the threat of death. Here in this story, the disciples are, threat, are faced with the threat of drowning. We're going to meet the garrison man who's possessed by demons. We're going to see the woman with the issue of blood. And we're going to see Jairus' daughter pass away. But Mark's point in all of this is to show that Jesus' power is equal to all of these threats of death. And not only equal to these threats of death... But Jesus' power is greater than any threat that may shatter our life. There are things in our lives that seem like if nothing else happens, if nothing changes, then our life is going to come apart. That we can't see a way forward. And Mark is going to show us that not only is Jesus' power equal to these things, but it is far, far greater. Further, specific in this story, Mark is going to show us that Jesus possesses the power to steal outward storms that threaten us. In this particular instance, and I'll show this in a moment, it's quite a powerful physical storm. Jesus can bring peace and calm. But he's also going to show that Jesus has the power to steal what goes on in here. That as fierce and as powerful As natural storms can be, sometimes they don't compare to the storms that exist in our hearts and our minds. The torment that we can put ourselves through. The agony of letting something go on and on and on in our mind. The what ifs. And Mark is saying that Jesus can bring peace even to our souls. Well, in the context of the story, they're they're by the Sea of Galilee... And if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, you know kind of the terrain. If you've never been there, then I'll describe it for you. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. It's just to the north of the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on the earth. And so it's a, it's a very low spot. And it's surrounded by a mountain range. And so if you stand on the, sea of Gal- the shore of the Sea of Galilee, it's like you're standing in a bowl. You can look around the hole and see the mountain range. And just to the north, just 100 miles or so, not even to the north, there is a massive mountain range that extends upwards of 3,000 feet above sea level. And so between the top of that mountain and the water level of the Sea of Galilee is approximately a 3,700 feet difference. 
And so what happens naturally is that the Sea of Galilee would produce warm air and that warm air would rise and as that warm air would rise it would encounter the cold air coming down from the mountains and there would be storms. And so the Sea of Galilee is known for being kind of tumultuous when it comes to storms. And if you recall, Jesus' disciples, several of them were fishermen. They were professional fishermen on the Sea of Galilee because it's a large body of water, seven miles or so across at its widest point. And so they would have grown up knowing about these storms. They would have grown up experiencing these storms. And so to be out on the sea... To encounter a storm on the sea was nothing new to these disciples. But look with me at the text. Chapter 4, verse 35, it says, Jesus had finished his teachings. He's been teaching all day. He'd been ministering all day. And so he's tired. He's physically tired. And here's one of those places where we see Mark maintaining two truths about Jesus. That he's fully God... Remember, he's demonstrated that over and over again. Not only is he fully God, but he is also fully man. Because he got tired. And so he went to sleep. Jesus says, let's go across. It was Jesus' choice to go. Let's go across to the other side. We're already in the boat. And so they ship off. And Mark is, is recording again. If you remember, Peter wrote. Peter dictated and Mark wrote. And so Peter's remembering Jesus told us to get in the boat. Jesus said, let's go across to the other side. And oh, by the way, there's some other boats that went with them. It says, and other boats were with him. And while they were crossing, and this would have been sometime in the evening, maybe even dark by this point, while they were crossing, in verse 37, it says, a great windstorm arose. So if you see on your notes there, point number one is a great storm. <clears throat> Mark records it as a great windstorm. In the, the original language, you can look at it, and without any kind of training in Greek, you can clearly see the word mega. So what Mark is trying to show us is that this was not just a normal Galilean sea storm. This was a, an uncommonly large and uncommonly fierce storm. And it was such a fierce storm that Mark remembers the waves were breaking into the boat and the boat was filling with water. So they've done some archaeological studies. They've found some of these boats. These fishing boats often had low sides for them to tend to pull that net up over the side so there, there wasn't much in the way to pull up over. And so the water was so choppy and so rough that the water was breaking into the boat. And do you know what happens when water gets into a boat? It sinks. It stops being a boat. And so what's happening is they're out in the, the middle of the sea. It's getting dark or already dark. And so they've, they've lost their bearings of sorts. It's, it's very uncomfortable at nighttime. We, we, we can see in the day, we can see points and objects, and we can say, all right, if I can just get to there, but it's nighttime. They're tired. And not only are they tired, there is a megastorm raging. And so these, this group of men who grew up on this sea, who have experienced these storms, are terrified. This mega storm has terrified them. They have never encountered anything like this. But here's some things we need to note. Jesus knew that the storm would come. 
before they ever got into the boat, before they ever pushed out into the water, Jesus knew that halfway across or however far they were, Jesus knew that this storm was going to come. If he didn't know, he wouldn't be God. And yet Mark has told us over and over again that he's God. And so Jesus knew. Jesus knew that the storm would come. A second thing we need to note, Jesus led them into it. He said, hey, let's get in the boat. Let's go across. It was Jesus' choice. The disciples didn't, didn't beckon Jesus to go. They didn't, they didn't say, hey, Jesus, don't, wouldn't it be better over there? Jesus says, let's go across. He initiated the journey. And if you will remember, several times, beginning in chapter 3 and, and, and all throughout the teaching of chapter 4, Jesus is talking about these categories of the insiders and the outsiders. The insiders are those who know the secrets of the kingdom, who understand Jesus, And the outsiders are those who see Jesus and think he might can help them, but really aren't interested in in being his followers and being obedient to him. And so here what we have is Jesus separating himself, separating the insiders, that is his disciples, from the outsiders because Jesus is about to teach his followers something. He's been teaching the crowds all day. He's been giving them parables all day. He's been actively teaching. But now he's going to teach his disciples. He's going to teach these insiders. He's going to teach the ones to whom the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given. He's going to give them something more. Well, before that happens, he goes to sleep. Let's go to the other side. He knows the storm's coming. He's physically tired from teaching all day. And so he goes to sleep. And it says, and when the storm is raging, now Jesus doesn't wake up once the storm gets bad. He continues to sleep on because not until the disciples are convinced that they're going to die, do they go and wake him. So obviously he was a pretty good sleeper. Or either he was exhausted. But his sleep is purposeful. He goes to sleep on purpose, and he goes to sleep to demonstrate something to his disciples. His sleeping is a physical representation of scriptural promises. Let me share with you some of them. The first one coming from Job chapter 11. He says, and you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will count your favor. We read another one in Psalm chapter 3 verse 5 where the psalmist writes, I lay down and I slept and I woke again for the Lord sustained me. In Psalm 121, verse 3, it says, He will, talking about God, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now what that means is that Jesus isn't somehow violating this text. What it means is that God is always aware. And so Jesus going to sleep doesn't mean that he's somehow less aware. He's orchestrated this whole thing, and he's even decided to sleep so that the disciples might come to know something. Lastly, from Proverbs 3, we read these words. Then, if you listen to wisdom, the point is, then you will walk in your way securely. Your foot will not stumble. 
If you lie down, you will not be afraid. And when you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. How many times have you lost sleep because you aren't trusting that God is there? How many times have you lost sleep or anxiety has wrecked your body because you aren't remembering that God is there? But it says, if we follow the way of wisdom, our sleep will be sweet. It goes on, do not be afraid of a sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence. Will keep your foot from being caught. And so Jesus going to sleep was purposeful. It was a way to remind the disciples that no matter what's going to come, God is in control. You see, we need to understand that Jesus will put his people in situations where he, where he is the only answer. For those who are followers of King Jesus, he will lead us into situations where there is no other answer than him alone. Because if there was another answer, we would naturally follow after that. But here we see that Jesus has led his disciples and those around him into a situation that is totally out of their control. He just finished teaching, as I said. He had just given them the secrets of the kingdom of God. They knew Jesus. That's huge. They knew Jesus. And he said to them, I'm giving you the secrets of the kingdom. And yet they doubted. How often, like the disciples, do we forget God when storms arise in our life. Maybe it's a physical storm. Those can be quite terrifying. It might be an emotional storm or a financial storm or or a health storm. When those things arise in our life, how often, like the disciples, are we so quick to forget God? And not that we forget that God is powerful. That's oftentimes not our struggle. We don't often wonder, God, can you fix this? Like the disciples, our fear or our wondering is often, God, why won't you fix this? You see, the disciples weren't doubting God's ability, Jesus' ability to calm that storm. They were doubting his love for them. It says, and a great windstorm arose, and he was asleep, and the disciple says, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They didn't say, teacher, won't you do something? Teacher, won't you fix this? No, they said, Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? You see, hardship tempts us to think that God isn't watching. Hardship tempts us to think that God doesn't care. Hardship leads us into temptation where we begin to ask questions like, God, why me? And we forget promises of Scripture. Kelly mentioned just a moment ago, when the world cuts us, do we bleed the Bible? When hardship cuts us, do we remember James chapter 1, which was also mentioned earlier? James chapter 1 says, Count it joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that we may be complete, mature, and lacking in nothing. You see, unbeknownst to the disciples in these moments, Jesus was strengthening their faith. 
Or maybe we remember 1 Peter chapter 1 where Peter talks about the tested genuineness of our faith. Do you know what that means? That means that God will move us into situations where our faith is put to the test. It's a quote I often remember from a guy named Jared Wilson. And it's a play on an older quote. The older quote is, if God closes one door, he'll open another one. And Jared's point, I think it's a more biblical point, he says, just because God closes one door doesn't mean he's going to open another door or a window. He says, sometimes it's God's will to bring the house down on top of us. And then he asks this question, will Jesus be enough? If all the doors are closed and the house is coming down, is the fact that you have Jesus in full enough for you? You see, sometimes we feel that God is silent in the midst of our trials. Sometimes we feel that he is asleep in the back of the boat. And like the disciples, sometimes we fail to understand that Jesus' silence is not a mark of absence, but it's a mark of sovereignty. Well, look at verse 39. It says, there was a great storm and the disciples were, were, were wondering if Jesus was there, if he cared. And it says, he woke up and rebuked the wind and spoke to the sea and there was a great calm. You see, the disciples were terrified. Jesus, do you care? Maybe some of you are wrestling with that right now. You're in a situation and and you don't see a way out and all you see is the water coming in the boat and you are actively at this moment wondering, Jesus, do you care that I'm suffering? It says that Jesus wakes up and rebukes the wind, speaks to the seer. Quite literally, it translates, he muzzles the storm. He muzzles it. I I was wondering... And so I looked up the average energy of a thunderstorm. You ever looked that up? How much energy does, a, does the average thunderstorm pack? The average thunderstorm releases more energy than the first atomic bomb. When we just do a comparison to comparison, the average thunderstorm has within it, because thunderstorms are miles tall, They have within it more energy than the first atomic bomb. There are two gigawatts of power contained in a thunderstorm. And if you're like me, I was wondering, all right, I don't know what that means. There's enough electricity in a typical thunderstorm to power New York City for 26 minutes. That's a lot of power. Or another way to say it is there is one billion volts of electricity in the average thunderstorm. Now, the, the, the key point here is I'm saying the average thunderstorm. And Jesus, or Mark is telling us this was not an average storm. This was a mega storm. This was a size, this, was, this storm was a size that wasn't normal. It was so big that these experienced seamen were terrified. And here's something even more astounding than the power of the storm. The implication of what Mark is saying is that when Jesus spoke to this storm, it didn't just calm down and the water's lapping gently and the wind is calmed down to this light breeze. The implication of what Mark is saying is it went from an uncontrollable fury to nothing. No wind, 
no waves. If you blow on the water, what happens? It ripples. And if in the midst of a thunderstorm, all of that wind is churning the water, how long does it take for that water to return to stillness? It takes a while. But the implication of what Mark is saying is that this great megastorm has now become this mega calm. You see, it's the same word there in your Bible, or it should be. Great storm, great calm. It's the same word, mega calm. Something incredible happened. It went from chaos to absolute stillness. There was no energy still working itself out. It was gone. And it says the disciples were astonished. They wanted Jesus to do something. They wanted Jesus to respond. And they were looking for him to respond in a way that they expected. Jesus, get up and handle the storm. Make it calm so that we won't so that we won't die. Just fix it enough to where the water will stop coming in the boats and we'll be good. Jesus, just get my life back on the right track. Just deal with this person or this situation or whatever so I can get myself finished. I can handle most of it if you'll just handle the part I can't. And so the disciples were just looking for Jesus to handle what they couldn't. And yet Jesus stood up and did something they weren't even expecting Something they didn't even have the mental capacity to imagine. Jesus took this mega storm and made it go absolutely away. Often in hardship and trial, we forget that Jesus is not only all powerful, but that he is all loving towards us. Sometimes we forget that his power is exercised in love toward his people. In Psalm 107, this very account is laid out for us. Psalm 107, verse 23, it reads, Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord and his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea, and they mounted up to the heaven. Then they went down to the depths, and it says their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and they staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. So here's the point. And when I say the point, I mean one of many. We, like the disciples, can become like the drunken men of Psalm 107. We get overwhelmed by situations. We see something that's outside of our control. It feels like the boat is just sinking and we lose our minds. The world cuts us and we don't bleed scripture. The world cuts us and we bleed ourselves. Instead of going to Jesus, we, we ask the questions, don't you care, Jesus, that I'm going through a hard time? If you cared, you wouldn't let me go through this hard time. But as they're wrestling with this great storm that has now become a great calm, verse 40, Jesus speaks to them and says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And it says, and they were filled with a great fear. It's the same word, mega 
fear. Mark records after this miraculous display of power that Jesus' disciples' fear went up. They got more afraid. They were scared of the wind, but now they were terrified of the man in the boat. There was a great storm, a great calm, and then a great fear. Their fear intensifies as it moves from the storm to the man in the boat. Who is this, they ask. What kind of a person can stand up and do that? What kind of a person commands the wind and the waves so much so that he absorbs all of that energy and it's gone? You see, the disciples were seeing, yet not fully seeing. Here's what I mean. Back in chapter four, Jesus has already said that I'm I'm giving you the secrets of the kingdom. You have special insight. You know that I'm the Messiah. And yet here, they're seeing the Messiah on display and they're saying, well, who is this? What we need to remember, brothers and sisters, is that Christian maturity doesn't come just like that. We must grow in our Christ-likeness, even when we have been given insight into the secrets of the kingdom. That doesn't make us mature overnight. Sometimes Jesus will take us into storms. Sometimes he will take us into hardship and suffering to mature and grow our faith. Because sometimes our faith only grows when we are overwhelmed with the sight of Jesus. You see, the disciples are on the verge of being the rocky soil of chapter 4, verse 5. Something has arisen, and their first response is to question God. And yet, it is Jesus who sustains their faith. It is Jesus who holds them together. It is Jesus who, through rebuking them, matures them. Have you still no faith? Do you still not understand? Have you seen and heard all that I have done? And you still don't understand? Jesus asked his disciples, where is your faith? Why, why did you fear? One pastor notes, can you imagine what the disciples must have been thinking when Jesus asked that question? What do you mean why were we afraid? We were afraid because we were going to die. We were afraid you didn't love us. And because if you, if you loved us, you wouldn't let these things happen to us. But Jesus' question to them had behind it this thought. To the disciples, your beginning point is wrong. The place where you started, that belief that God won't let anything bad happen to his people, that is wrong. Jesus is saying you should have known better because I do allow people I love to go through storms. And here's ultimately what he's saying. You had no reason to panic. If we are in Christ, we never have a reason to panic. Even on the brink of death, Jesus is saying, you, when we are panicking, when we are gr- grasping for anything that can save us, we are forgetting that not only is God all-powerful, but that God loves us. That God loves us deeply. 
And so I ask this question, have we misunderstood the person and power of Jesus? You see, the disciples had. They knew him. They'd lived with him. They'd walked with him. But they'd misunderstood him. They knew he was a teacher. They knew he was a miracle worker. But they had just seen. They had just experienced the reality that he is God. Their fear moved from what was outside to the man in the boat. Because they realized the man in the boat is God. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, one of the characters asked of Aslan, who's the great lion, is he safe? You ever been to the zoo and you look at a lion? You, you know the answer. Is that lion safe? And his response is, of course he's not safe. Who said anything about him being safe? But he's good. He's the king. So my question this morning, are you trusting that Jesus loves you in the midst of the storm? So you see, so often we want a Jesus who can save us when we call on him. We want him to save us in the way that we expect him to save us, in the way that we are comfortable with. The disciples wanted salvation, but the salvation they received rocked them to the core. Jesus, fix what's out there. Don't worry about me. And Jesus not only fixed what was out there, he rocked them to the core of their being. You see, God himself was in that boat. When you are getting bad news in the doctor's office and you are rocked to the core, you need to pause and remember God himself. If you are a believer in Christ, God himself is in that room. If your family is falling apart for one reason or another, before you go panicking and grasping and grabbing for anything you can, you need to remember that God is with you in that situation. If you are coming undone because of all the mental storm or whatever it is in your heart and in your life, you need to remember that God is with you in your heart. And just as God was silent, just as Jesus Christ was silent in the boat for a reason, if it seems like Jesus is silent in our lives, in the midst of our hurting, in the midst of our suffering, he's silent for a reason. And it's not because he's not there. It's not because he can't fix it. It's not because he's unaware It's because he's doing something in our lives. You see, he was going to call the disciples to give up everything for him. And they needed to see. They needed to see who exactly was going to make that call in their life. It was the God who could take a mega storm and make it a mega calm. Like I said, maybe you're in a storm. Maybe Jesus is being silent. Are you trusting him that his being there is enough? Are you trusting that he's leading you into deeper faith and knowledge and experience of him? Or are you fighting the growth that he wants to bring? Are you doubting that he cares? Are you pushing back and saying, no, Jesus, it's my way or the highway? Maybe your fear is larger than the truth. 
Some of you, no doubt, are scared and wondering. Does God care? I said, that's the first group of people I want to speak to this morning. And I hope what you've seen in this text is that not only does God care, God cares immensely for his people, so much so that his responding to hardship is actually him using stuff to mature us in our faith. I said the second group of people I wanted to speak to were those who may have forgotten who Jesus is. And I hope like the disciples that God is bringing in you because I have been here, all of us have been here. But if that's you this morning, that God is instilling in you a great fear because of who he is. It's not just this casual genie of a God that we can just make any request of. It is God himself who is set apart, who is all-powerful, who is holy, who can take the energy of a storm the size of multiple atomic bombs and in the blink of an eye make it go away. And who can take what ravages you in your heart and bring it to peace. The third group I said is, perhaps you've never seen Jesus like this. And if that's you, you don't desire salvation any less than anybody else. You've just been looking for it in the wrong areas. And Jesus says to us that there is no salvation except in him alone. As we close this morning, let me invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. If you are dealing this morning with fear or anxiety or struggle, I invite you to bring that to God. He is ready to hear. He is ready to bear it. He is ready to remind you that he loves you. If you are here this morning and you are fighting against the hardship in your life because God wouldn't do that, if that's you this morning, then you be reminded that God uses hardship in our life to mature us. And if you are here and you have never trusted Jesus Christ, I invite you and implore you to do that now. There is no salvation from the storm of life. There is no salvation from the storm of sin other than the power of Jesus Christ. God, as we respond now, we pray that you would move among us. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing. The altar is open. Let's respond.
It's good to hear uh, from God. Amen. Not from me. Uh, I needed that sermon as much as many of you did. Uh, I just had the privilege of being with it all week. You're just getting it now. Um, just a few reminders as we go. We have a members meeting tonight at 6 p.m. There are some agendas and notes right here to my left, your right. So make sure to grab one of those and plan to be here with us tonight. But let me pray as we dismiss. God, it has been good today to be together. It's been good to sit under the power and the authority of your word. It's been good to hear from men. It's been good to make much of who you are. As we dismiss now, God, I pray we go with steady hearts. Steady hearts because of who you are. We love you. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen.